12 who walked and ministered alongside Jesus and the other 11 apostles for three years. I think there's an important lesson just in the life of Judas that we should not take for granted our salvation just because we're around others who are saved. Jesus is very clear in his high priestly prayer that Jesus is, that Judas is the son of perdition, that he is lost. Think of uh, some uh, who at one time were dear friends of mine, and yet uh, I don't know them now. I think of one of my best friends in college uh, uh, from my freshman year all the way up until the beginning of my senior year when he began to drift away from the truth. Think of a good friend of mine uh, who's a fellow seminary student and worked at Chick-fil-A with me who ended up renouncing the faith. Uh, he, he was never a believer. He was children's pastor at Highview, one of the largest churches in Louisville, and yet came out he was never genuinely converted. So there's an important lesson uh, that we need to have in mind with Judas. We don't need to come with a position of assuming too much. So Mark begins in verse 1 of chapter 14. It was now two days before the Passover. So this is Wednesday of Holy Week. And the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said of them, to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, this striking contrast of murderous betrayal and lavish love. May our hearts respond as they should to Christ. May we love him all the more. And I pray this morning, if there are any within the sound of my voice who do not love the Lord Jesus, that they would see how worthy of his love, he, how worthy of their love he is. And that we come to love him and know him as their Lord and Savior. And I pray that we who profess to love him would bear witness to that love in our lives. That others would be able to see our lives and our love and devotion to him. 
and see how excellent he is. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. The week is drawing ever to a close that Jesus has already predicted several times how this week is going to end. The, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, are going to arrest him. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, and he is going to die. He is uh, resolutely following his course, and while he is following his course, the religious leaders are following theirs. Uh, demonstrating their rejection of God and the Son of God. You know, remember the parable of the vineyard? The Son has come, and now uh, they are going to kill the Son. There's something interesting about sin. We never want to do it in an open and public way. And their commitment to secrecy demonstrates the fact that they know what they're doing is wrong. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, let there, lest there be an uproar from the people. They know that what they're doing is wrong. They know it's unpopular, and so they're going to do it as secretly as they can. Now, these uh, between here, uh, this is what they call a, a, a sandwich. Mark is interrupting uh, the uh, plot for the betrayal of Christ and, and setting in the midst of it this testimony of lavish love and devotion to Christ. He has these little sandwiches uh, throughout his gospel. Think of uh, when Jairus sends his servants uh, to have his daughter healed because she's fallen ill. And uh, Mark interrupts that episode with the woman with the issue of blood who has such faith in Jesus that she believes that just by touching the hem of his garment, she can be healed. Whereas he arrives at Jairus' home on the other side of that and saying, oh, nothing Jesus can do here. When Mark has these sandwiches, he's wanting us to draw greater attention to the meat of the story. And for us, this is the woman who anoints the feet of Jesus. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. She's anointing his head. And in fact, there's so much of it, it anoints his whole body. And Jesus doesn't respond with mock humility. You know, sometimes somebody will do something very lavish for us. And, you know, what will we say? Oh, no, that's too much. Uh, I'm not that important. And we don't really mean it. We, we just don't want to come off as prideful. But Jesus accepts this lavish display of love. Mark doesn't tell us anything about this woman. Doesn't tell us her name. Doesn't tell us how she's come to know Jesus. All he tells us, and he's very keen, is that she has loved Jesus in a very lavish way. She's displayed this Lavish love. This woman who hasn't known Jesus as well as his disciples have. And yet, how do the disciples respond? What we're told in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves. So they're watching this. And they respond with indignation. Uh, and indignation isn't strong enough. They're furious 
at this woman showing this lavish, extravagant love towards Christ. And they're thinking in their heads while they see this going on, why was this ointment wasted like that? Why would they waste such an expensive gift on Jesus? Now, Mark's building up to unveiling something, but the other gospel writers, John in particular, John doesn't pull any punches. John makes it clear who this is. Well, it wasn't all 11. There was one disciple in particular who was questioning in himself why such an extravagant gift would be, quote-unquote, wasted on Jesus. It was Judas. thinking to themselves, Jesus isn't worth this. There's a contrast here. You know, love towards Christ doesn't measure out and calculate and have an actuary table and decide, okay, this is how much love and devotion Jesus is worth. This woman, whoever she is, whatever Jesus has done for her, she understands grace. Think of all the sacrifices uh, of the Old Testament that were required of God's people. None of them measured up to the display of love this woman is showing. So this one who is reasoning to themselves, why was this ointment wasted like that? Uh, they, they do a quick calculation in their head how much is worth. For... This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. You have to look at your footnote to see what a denarii is. A denarii is a day's wage. What this woman did, she took an alabaster jar of ointment that was worth more than a year's income. She's broken it open and poured it on Jesus. She, she's poured out uh, over a year's worth of income on Jesus. And one of Jesus' disciples is just folding his arms, looking. Can't believe somebody would waste so much on Jesus. Who do they think it, this Jesus is? That they would waste so much on him. It should be sold and given to the poor. And John tells us uh, that, Judas reasoned this way because he was in charge of Jesus' money bag and he was a thief. I scolded her. They criticized her. They attacked her and were told that Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, Mark wants us to come to uh, an understanding. We're, we're at a dilemma when it comes to Jesus. Either Jesus is the Son of God, worthy of all our love and adoration and devotion, or he's a sociopath. Either Jesus calls for all that we are, all that we could give him, and that even if we could give all that we are and all we have to him, and it would fall short of what he's worth. Or, or he's somebody that we can throw away easily. This woman has done the best she could to display to Jesus 
And then to those watching how much she values Jesus because she has broken this jar of ointment and anointed him. And Jesus says that she has done a good thing. And Jesus, knowing what is in the hearts of men, and probably what they said to the woman as well, it tells them in verse 7, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. It's a good reminder for us in our own day and age. There will always be the poor in the world. And yes, we should do good for them. Uh, we are commanded. Uh, uh, we think of uh, the requirement given to Paul when he is given his ministry, when he devotes himself to the ministry of, to the Gentiles. You know, in Galatians he said that one thing was asked of him, that they would remember the poor. And Paul says this thing we were glad to do. We should never tempt ourselves into thinking that anything that we do will ever eliminate poverty. Poverty is always going to be around us. I remember uh, reading one commentator. He was talking about how uh, he was preaching at the church uh, of a man who had served in the inner city for 24 years. And in that 24-year period, he'd uh, bring in assistants, uh, fresh seminary graduates, and they'd come with their youthful idealism that something they were going to do was going to eliminate poverty in the inner city. And so after two years, their idealism would go away, and they'd leave, and they'd go elsewhere. This commentator uh, said, uh, he asked his pastor, why have you stayed? And he said, uh, it's because Jesus' words here, you always have the poor with you. See, we, we look at poverty as this problem that we need to uh, uh, address and isolate and get rid of. And Jesus is saying, you're always going to have the poor with you. See, the disciple rebuking the woman thought uh, that uh, he would uh, cloak uh, his lack of love for Jesus with an appeal to benevolence. He's saying, you could always do good to the poor. Well, why are you attacking this woman for doing something good to me and for me? We don't have Jesus present in our lives. He's not physically here. We, we can't go and bust open a year's worth of ointment on him and anoint him in preparation for his burial. We're told in the Gospel of Matthew that there's coming a day of judgment when he's going to separate the sheep and the goats. And what is going to be the mark of difference? Jesus, the... The goats are going to ask, oh, when did we see you poor? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? What is Jesus going to say? What you have done unto the least of these, my, what you have not done unto the least of these, my brothers, you did not do unto me. And others are going to hear that they had visited him in prison, that they had cared for him when he was sick, that they cared for him when he was poor. And they're going to say, when did we see you poor or in need or in prison? And Jesus is going to tell those who have done so, what you have done unto the least of these, my brothers, you have done unto me. Yes, we are to love Jesus lavishly, but here and now, how we show Jesus' lavish love is by loving one another. You know, about the 400s, 
300 AD, uh, there became a misunderstanding of the Christian life, that we could love Jesus in isolation from others. You know, that, that's at the heart of the monastic system uh, that has developed. And sometimes we think that we can love Jesus in isolation from others. And yet Jesus is going to lay down his life, not for us as isolated individuals. He's going to lay down his life for the church. You know, the Paul, Apostle Paul says that we are to do good to all, especially the household of faith. And so... If we want to show lavish love towards Jesus, it's going to be in the context of loving one another. So this disciple is attacking the woman. Jesus silences him. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. He just knew the direction his road was going. Jesus knew that the one who is making these accusations didn't really care. He's saying this for the benefit of his disciples. They would understand that the time they have with him is limited. Yes, he would die. Yes, he would rise again. And after 40 days, he would ascend to his father's right hand. And to make abundantly clear that Jesus knows where this week is ending, he says in verse 8, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Gospel writers hold this woman up as an example of how we are to respond to Christ. How do we respond to the grace of Christ? We don't respond to it uh, with a checklist. You know, we're, we're not saved by works, so we don't have a checklist of works where we, you know, we get through the list and, you know, we, well, we got it done. You know, if we are saved by grace and we are brought into a loving relationship with Christ, there is no extent to how much we can show our love for Christ. You th think about this uh, with, with your spouses. You know, your spouse goes to the doctor's office and, you know, they say, okay, that operation's going to run so much, you don't go running through your head. Well, you know what? He, my wife's really not worth that. You know, imagine going to the doctor. Uh, you know, doctor says, okay, your wife needs an operation. It's going to be $30,000. Well, let me think. Let me do the math. No. Doc, she's not worth that. Your wife, you'd probably be walking home. And yet, that's how the disciples treating Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is not worth this. And we might be tempted to think, okay, we'd never be like that disciple. If we're honest with ourselves... How often are we tempted to be that way? I mean, speaking for myself, I, I, I've never poured out a, a year's worth of anything for Jesus. Think about how guarded we are, not just with our money. Yet we, I mean, there, there's wisdom to stewardship, but think about how guarded we are with our time with our talents, all these things that God has blessed us with. And, and yet, this woman was able, without a thought, without any regret, 
to break open this alabaster jar that's worth over a year's wages and pour it out on Jesus. And not without, and Mark doesn't say there was any second thoughts, any doubts, any reservations on whether Jesus was worth it. She did it. And Jesus lifts her up as an example of lavish love. See, Mark wants us to understand that when we come to the person of Jesus, we're faced with two decisions. We can either respond how this woman has responded, and we can love him and adore him. Now, Paul would say that we're to render our bodies as living sacrifice, so all that we are is laid down in response to the grace that we've experienced from Christ. Or we can be like the religious leaders in Judas. See, this disciple, who other gospel writers might clear, is Judas. At least Judas, and maybe one other. Very least, Judas has understood in his mind that he has calculated what Jesus is worth. He's decided what Jesus is worth to him. And the religious leaders have calculated as well what Jesus is worth to them. So Mark had began this chapter with telling us that the religious leaders have decided that now is the time to arrest him by stealth and kill him. How are they going to do that? Well, Mark answers that question in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Yeah, you have to love how Mark writes his gospel. You know, you're reading the Gospel of Mark. If you hadn't read the other Gospels, you wouldn't see this coming. It would come out of nowhere. You wouldn't think, well, you know, of course it's Judas. Even Jesus' own followers. You think of the Lord's Supper. You know, Jesus tells that one of them will betray me. It's not like the other 11 are all standing looking, okay, yeah. It's Judas. It's got to be Judas. See, we have so much familiarity with the Holy Week story that we think, oh, yeah, of course it's Judas. That's not how the gospel writers want us to take it. The apostles are questioning themselves, is that me? They don't assume, okay, it must be one of them. They start asking, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray him? Am I going to act faithlessly towards my Lord and Savior? So let let the weightiness of this sit with you. Judas, one of the twelve. You know, Jesus goes away to the mountaintop and he prays. And the next day he calls out twelve to be his apostles. Twelve that he's going to send out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to perform mighty wonders. Judas, one of the twelve. You think of the hundreds that you know, were fair-weather followers. Judas was there for all of it. Judas, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now, we don't know what was going on in Judas' head. We don't know ultimately what led Judas to betray Christ. Uh, There's debate on whether he was trying to force Jesus' hand. 
that he was upset that Jesus wasn't taking a strong enough stance against the Romans. And so he thought, well, if I betray him, then he's going to have to stand up to Rome. Or he could have grown disillusioned. This whole time, as, there, uh, as they had been making their way to Jerusalem, he had been telling his disciples, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. Remember uh, in John's gospel, after he heals Lazarus, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And what does Thomas, uh, the twin, say? Well, let us go and die with him. You know, it might be uh, that he decided, I don't want to die with him. He wants to die. Well, I'll make it happen, but I'm not going to die with him. Whatever the reason was, this one who is one of his friends. Jesus called him friend. One of his friends would betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. They came to agreed upon price of what Jesus was worth. Later on, we're going to find out how much it was. It was 30 denarii, 30 pieces of silver. It's all months' wages, the price you would pay for a slave. Here you have the disciple, just a little bit before complaining about the lavish love shown on Jesus. 300 denarii, 300 silver coins, all wasted on Jesus really worth 30 pieces of coin. Maybe he's dead. It's a dangerous thing that happens in our lives when we come to Jesus and we think about Jesus and we assume how much he's worth to us. See, the fact of the matter is, if you are saved, you have given God, a blank check. You haven't said, well, God, you're worth this much of my life, this much of my time, this much of my money. Uh, the, the rest is mine. You can't touch that because you're not worth it. But I fear that far too often in contemporary Christianity, that, that, that's how we treat Jesus. Jesus, you're worth this much and not a penny more. You're worth this much and not an hour more. And yet when we find ourselves uh, in that manner of accounting for what Jesus is worth, we're, we're not with uh, this woman who has displayed lavish love upon J Jesus. You know, she doesn't say, hey, this alabaster jar I'm breaking over your head is worth this much. She simply does it silently commending how much Jesus is worth to her. You know, the ones who, who are vocal and clear about how much Jesus is worth are the religious leaders in Judas. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, Mark, all throughout, he, he's trying to bring his readers to see that there is a dilemma that we face when we come to Christ. That dilemma is either we see him as the Son of God, worthy of all our love, all our adoration, that we're willing to uh, lay it all out and pour it out and not count it as loss because we believe that he's worthy of far more. Or we just turn our back on him. There, there's only two ways about it. 
And yet, even as Judas has turned his back on Christ, it's not going to become readily apparent. You know, he meets with the chief priest, and you know what? He's still at supper with Jesus. He, he's still going through the motions. You know, it's very easy to go through the motions uh, of a religious life while at the same time having predetermined how much Jesus is worth to you. And so as we come to this conclusion, what Mark would have us understand is if we are going to respond to Jesus rightly, it's not going to be on the basis of us uh, calculating and tabulating how much we're willing to give him of ourselves. Because that's not what this woman does. What Mark wants us to think as we draw near and consider Christ is that if we have already from the get-go decided how much he's worth, we're in the wrong group. These chief priests and scribes, and Judas himself, they're not part of the kingdom. They hate the kingdom. They want nothing to do with the kingdom. That They, for whatever reasons, both the religious leaders and Judas, they're done with Jesus. They've run his course. You know, for Judas, Jesus was popular for a time, and now he's not. He was worth following for a time, and now he's not. Now, uh, he, he's a quick way to get 30 silver coins for betraying him, for betraying his trust, for betraying him and handing him over. And he finds his opportunity. That's the crazy thing about sin. When we decide uh, that we're going to set on sin, you know, the religious leaders, they set upon it in secrecy. And Judas is set upon doing it. If we're set upon doing something wrong, we, we always find a way. Yet, so often we find it so hard to do the right things. We think about how much Jesus is worth to us, and we think about those that we know who are so far from him spiritually. And we'll make all sorts of excuses on why the time isn't right to tell them about Jesus, why the time isn't right to do something uh, to show our love for Christ and commending him to sinners. We'll make all the excuses in the world. And yet, we never have to make excuses or find time to do the wrong things. You know, Judas didn't, have to, didn't go to the chief priest and say, well, you know what, I'm going to try really hard to do this, but I'm going to have to work it into my schedule. He did it quick. You know, Jesus uh, at the Lord's Supper, he's going to tell him what you do, do it quickly. And if nothing else, Judas was quick and efficient in his betrayal of Jesus. So as we come to this time of invitation, I, I ask you, I don't ask you whether you're a church member or whether you've walked this aisle or another aisle and prayed a prayer with a pastor. I ask you right now, do you love Jesus? See, that's the response that Jesus deserves from us. And the Apostle Paul, writing the church of Corinth, would say that if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. See, I, I tell you right now that if you don't love Jesus, you might be a member of the church. You, you might be so many different things, but you're not part of the kingdom. 
I'll tell you that if you don't love Jesus, even if you went to heaven, which you're not, you would hate heaven. Heaven is a world of love where the love of God in Christ is made manifest and evident. Heaven is filled with people like this woman who loved Jesus in this lavish and wonderful way. I tell you, if you don't love Jesus, you would be absolutely miserable in heaven. As would this disciple who's questioning the woman and the worth of Jesus. So as we come to this time of invitation, set it in your heart, answer that question for yourself. Do I love Jesus? You know, everything else falls into place after you answer that question. You find that you love Jesus, everything else falls into place after that. So let's go Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that Jesus is indeed worthy of all of our love and adoration. That we could give all that we are, all that we have, and even that would not be enough to display how lovely Jesus is. I pray that if there are any here this morning or that the sound of my voice who don't love Jesus, that they would come to love him. Because he is worthy of all of our love and adoration. Because he has done what we could not do. Even while we were your enemies, he died for us. When we were ungodly, he loved us and laid down his life for us. And so I pray that where there might not be faith, that faith awake, would awaken in the hearts in the sanctuary. And that faith would produce the fruit of love towards Christ, which it always does. For this we pray in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.